Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. This morning, we are continuing a sermon series that we began last week called Full Life. We jumped into this series through John chapter 10 and particularly zeroed in on John 10 verse 10 where Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so last week we acknowledged that all of our lives are full, but are they full of what what God wants to give us or are they full of schedules and priorities and commitments and concerns of all kinds. So in this series, we want to unpack what is this full life that God wants to give us through Jesus Christ? What does that mean? And what are the imitations perhaps that we settle for that's less than the full life he wants to give? This morning, as we move into this topic, many of you know that I grew up in Colorado in a little town called Evergreen, just west of Denver, up into the mountains. It was about 2,000 feet above Denver, 7,500 feet. And to get there, you would drive west on I-70 out of Denver. And as you get to the edge of the Denver metro area, you hit the Rocky Mountains. I mean, it's like plains and then boom, mountains. And as you start driving, you hit seven plus percent grades immediately. Now, for those of you who are only flatlanders your whole life, that's a lot. And my first car was a 1989 Mercury Topaz. I mean, it was a cherry. It was maroon interior and maroon exterior, right? Four-cylinder, 98-horsepower engine. It was a beast. (laughs) Okay, maybe that's a little overstatement. I think my lawnmower has a 98-horsepower engine these days. But I remember every time I would drive home, when I had gone someplace in the Denver area, I would hit that part of I-70 and the engine would just whine and it would rev and it would strain and it was working as hard as it could and the people that were walking and biking were passing me. (laughs) But for real, semi-trucks always passed me. I mean, this car barely had enough power to do what it was supposed to do and that was simply to get me home, right? Merriam-Webster defines power as this, the ability to act or produce an effect. In other words, the ability to do something. And this car barely had the ability to act like a car. (laughs) Having full life in Jesus Christ means having the power of God at work in our lives. The same power that created the universe, the same power that gives and sustains Life, and this morning, we're going to look at not what the power of God is, but particularly, what does he do? What does God's power at work in our lives actually produce? What does God's power accomplish within us to give us full life? So we're going to do that looking at Ephesians chapter 3, and if you'd like, you can follow along on the screen, Uh, but listen for God's word as he speaks into our lives this morning. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. 
I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, will you graciously add your blessing to the reading and hearing of your word this morning, that you take my words and make them yours. Anything that's not of you, may you cause it to be forgotten, to fall away, so that all that's left is your word working powerfully in each of our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a section of a letter that Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the city of Ephesus. And now what's interesting about this part, you probably noticed, we often think of the Bible as a whole set of teachings and instruction, and that's not what this is. This is actually a window of prayer. This is Paul praying for this church and for these people. And so what is he praying for? He said in verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. He's praying that God would strengthen the church with power. And that that word for power in Greek, which this was originally written in, is dunamis, the same root that we get our English word dynamite. And so when we think about that, we can already get a visual image of what Paul is getting at. He's praying that the explosive power of God through his spirit would break into the life of this church, of these people. Because, I mean, when dynamite goes off, it leaves a mark, doesn't it? I mean, I, I don't know from personal experience, but I've seen it, at least in movies and shows. And every time you see it, it leaves a mark. There's a reason that they use dynamite to blast a hole through those same Rocky Mountains in order to build tunnels, right? And when the mighty power of God works in our lives, it blows away all sorts of things. If the power of God through his spirit is going to work in our inner being, then something's got to give. And this is what Paul's praying for. He's praying that this explosive power of God would move in our inner being, in the core of who we are, in the center of our emotions, of our thoughts, of our spirit, at that deep, deep level, the innermost place. Why do they need God's power in their inner being? What is it that they need God to do? Because he needs to produce an effect in their lives that clearly they're not able to, or Paul wouldn't need to actually pray for this. The first answer to that is that he's praying that they'd have power that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Now, you may have heard that phrase or that something similar to that at some point in your life. You understood it as inviting Jesus Christ into your heart, and we often think of that phrase if you have heard it before, in terms of the first time you come to faith, inviting Jesus in for the first time. But who is Paul writing to? Is he writing to unbelievers who have made no profession of faith previously? No. He's writing to the church. 
He's writing to those who have already made a profession of faith in Jesus, who already believe that he's the Son of God, Lord, and Savior. But apparently when they believed, Christ began to dwell in their hearts, but there is a deeper way Christ can dwell in our hearts through faith. There's an old book called My, My Heart, Christ's Home by a man named Robert Boyd Munger. I mean, it, it's 32 pages long. You probably could get through it, and it's only about that big and large print, so barely call it a book. But the idea of this book is easy to understand. Munger uses the imagery of a house and compares it to his life, specifically his heart. And he imagines inviting Jesus into all of the rooms of his home that is his heart and considers what it would like be like to have Jesus actually come into those spaces and what those spaces might represent. So for instance, inviting Jesus into the study or the den or the library would be like inviting Jesus into his mind, where he holds his thoughts, what he, his worldview, what he thinks about, what he meditates on, what he thinks about people, what he thinks about himself. Does he think the way that Jesus thinks? Does he think the way Jesus teaches? And then he, he thinks about moving into the dining room, which represents his appetites, his desires, those things that he longs for, that he craves, and how he goes about then satisfying those desires and thinks about inviting Jesus into that, those spaces. And he continues through all of these different rooms of the house until eventually he comes to the hall closet. Now, we, most of us have a hall closet or a closet somewhere. It's that closet that when company's coming over, you're like cramming things in there and can barely get the door shut, right? You open it, it all falls out on you. It's, you know, that, this is that kind of closet. We also use imagery of skeletons in the closet, right? Because those closets are those hiding places where we try to stuff things away that we don't want anyone else to see or to know about. And he envisions inviting, actually he envisions Jesus asking him about that closet. And saying, you know what, there's something in this house that stinks. It smells like something is, is dead. And he knows that it's the closet. And, and he envisions his own response to Jesus, not wanting Jesus to go in there. Not wanting Jesus to see what he doesn't want Jesus to see. And, and he comes to this place of realizing he's going to have to let Jesus in. Even though in that closet are things from his old life, things that he's ashamed of, but things that he's still holding on to, he's still attached to them. Do you have a closet like that? <laughs> Not a physical closet. Do you have a closet in your heart, in your life like that, that you really don't want Jesus to go poking around in? Maybe it's from your past, it's those regrets that tend to haunt you in the middle of the night. Maybe it's from your present, those things that you may even feel ashamed of and yet you're still attached to and not ready to give up. Where does Jesus want to more fully move in and dwell in your life? You know, I, I know when I came to faith in Jesus in college, I know there were lots of rooms that I was not letting Jesus into. I barely even invited him onto the front porch, right? Because I was still holding on to the thoughts of how life works. I was still holding on to my own thinking, which I know eventually became aware was distorted. I became aware that I still just wanted people to like me and I might do whatever it would take and whatever it cost. I still wanted money, my money to be my money, to allow 
fund my priorities than the things that I wanted from life. I became aware of the desires and the longings, the patterns of behavior, the habits in my life from my past that I was still holding on to. And you know, I continue to find more and more of those things to this day. Which is why Paul prays for the power of God to work in their inner being. See, our tendency, I think, is to clean up the rooms of our heart and then invite Jesus in. Right? It's to work at making our lives more presentable. It's to fix the things that are wrong and then invite Jesus to come in. In fact, I believe that many of you probably have heard that from churches in your life. Yeah, clean yourself up to make yourself worthy of God. Then Jesus will come in. But the problem is we'll never get ourselves fully clean, will we? And even if we're successful at getting parts of ourselves clean, we have this tendency to so easily get puffed up with pride to say, yeah, look at my life. I'm turning it around. Look at me. I'm doing it right. And, and eventually that tends to make us look around and look at how other people, man, their life is a mess, but I'm cleaning mine up. And we start to feel superior and this arrogance and pride then just creates a cloud of dust that once again makes our heart filthy. Outwardly, some things might be getting clean, but inwardly, that dust of pride covers everything. And if we're honest, if I'm honest, that hall closet is a little too overwhelming for me to think about cleaning. Because I'm still attached to those things. To get rid of those things feels like getting rid of a piece of myself. And so I'm not really going to be able to do it even when I know it's not necessarily good for me. As a matter of fact, Munger realized that exact reality, and he asked Jesus to clean out the closet for him, to throw the stuff away that he couldn't throw away himself. And if we keep pressing this, just like cleaning our homes, our spaces, is not a one-time deal, right? It gets messy again. At least it does at my house. If you've figured something out, let me know, because that's an amazing trick. But as soon as one space gets cleaned up, Another space gets messy. And it's this repeated cycle over and over and over again. And ultimately, Munger realizes he just can't keep up. And so he invites Jesus to take on management of the entire house, over his entire heart. And see, this is where full life in Jesus Christ is. When he dwells in our hearts more fully through faith to live lives with no regrets, no shame, Right? Not feeling the burden of always feeling impure and unable to make ourselves adequate and worthy. This is why Paul prays for God's power to work in us that Christ may dwell in our heart through faith. We need that power of God to overcome our doubts that that might even be possible for us. But Paul seems to assume a positive answer to his prayer as he continues in the passage. He seems to assume that God's going to answer that prayer that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith because he says, now being rooted and established in love, in other words, as Christ dwells more fully in our hearts and our lives, we become more rooted like plants, like trees, putting roots deep down into soil which nourishes and nurtures the growth of the plant. We're rooted in the love of God as Christ dwells in our hearts, where he nourishes and feeds our souls and we're established 
It's like this firm foundation. This, when everything else in life feels uncertain, when we're not sure what's going to happen next, God's love becomes that firm foundation upon which we can stand. And so Paul is assuming that we'll be rooted and established in love, but then he goes on and he says, and so now I pray that you may have power together with all of God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. To grasp. That's that key word there. It's got actually a double meaning in English just as it did in Greek. This double meaning of grasp as in to understand or comprehend something. We can grasp a new idea or a concept, can't we? Or grasp, we can take hold of something. We can grasp someone's hand. We can grasp a doorknob. And so we need God's power, according to Paul, in order to grasp, to understand, and to take hold of how wide and long and high and deep is Christ's love for us. Which is kind of a strange prayer when it seems like he's assuming that we're already rooted and established in love. And I think... The reason he goes on to pray that way is because love is something that, on one hand, we take for granted and we have assumptions, but it's also incredibly complicated to really grasp. See, when we start to think about love, we have lots of assumptions. Love is a human need. We assume that when we see it, we'll know it. We'll be able to identify it. We assume that we'll be able to give it. We assume that we'll be able to experience it and know what it is. But I think implied in Paul's prayer is that we need the explosive power of God in, to go off in our lives so that we can even understand, let alone experience and receive the love of God. Why? <laughs> I think it's because the love of God is so different than the love that we experience in other aspects of our life. When we start to compare the love of God to the love that we experience in other ways, we start to realize, man, we've been shaped by the world's concepts of love, not by God's concepts of love. I mean, so many of us first learned about love from our parents, didn't we? And many of us had wonderful parents, very loving, doing the best that they could to nurture us in every way. And others, I've heard too many stories never even heard the words, I love you, from your parents. I know that for some, that's, even, that's just hard to even fathom that that could be possible, and yet that's such a common story. Others heard the words, I love you, but when you lined up, then the actions and the behaviors with those words, there was a disconnect. Because what the message was, I love you, but then the experience was, yeah, I'll give you affection if you perform a certain way, if you represent the family well, if you do this and do that, but don't do these things, then I'll give you the affection that comes with love. Others kept hearing the words, and yet it just, there was something empty and hollow because there was a deep, deep longing for more. We think about love often in romantic relationships, and that's shaped our ideas of what love is. <laughs> and so often what we've found in our romantic relationships is that love is there when there's a mutual affection, when there's a mutual happiness, when there is a mutuality of, hey, you make me feel good and warm and fuzzy, and so do I make you. What happens when there's failure? 
What happens when there's hurt? What happens when it doesn't live up to all it's expected to be? And so often I hear the story way far after the fact that we just fell out of love. Well, we fell out of that mutual happiness derived from one another because they were living up to my expectations and I was living up to theirs. See, love also in our culture today has become to mean kind of this inoffensive acceptance, right? This, to love somebody is just to accept everything about them, all of their, well, dysfunction or all of their hatred or all of their habits or all of their things that we don't particularly find, not just that we don't like and aren't appealing, but are actually hurtful and destructive. There's kind of this idea that just accept it all. And see, when we start comparing God's love to this kind of love that we've been shaped in, this is why it's hard to understand. This is why it's hard to grasp. Because we often say, well, God's love is unconditional, but it doesn't mean that way. It doesn't mean that do whatever you want, whatever you feel like. No, God loves us so much that he's saying, I have a way of living that's going to be the best for you. Follow my pattern. Follow my way. It's going to lead to a fullness of life. He loves us that much to say, you know what? Your life is a mess. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug and pretend and say, yeah, no, 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 big deal. It's just a little mistake. He calls us out. And he said, yeah, you're, you are a sinner. You are a failure. When it comes to my love, you are totally and completely unworthy of it. And, and at the same time, rather than walking away, rather than rejecting, rather than turning on us as the world does when we become distasteful to them, God instead said, yes, you're, you are unworthy, and yet here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to meet all of the conditions necessary for you to be loved. And this is, when, this is where Jesus came in. This is how profound the love of Christ really is, because this is what the cross is really about. It was about bringing out from under the rug all of our failure, all of our entitlement, all of our sin, all of our regret, all of our shame, all of these things. And Jesus said, yes, I will take that from you. No, I'm not going to pretend it doesn't matter. No, it matters so much that I'm going to have to die. But here's the thing. I'm willing to die for you. See, that's so different. God's love, Christ's love for us is so different. It's hard for us to even understand because it functions so different than the world functions. It says your life is a mess and it says, I love you so much, I will take your mess upon myself. I mean, this is hard to understand because because it's so different, but it's not new for so many of us. So many of us know this in our brain. Oh yeah, I understand. Jesus died for my sins. I understand that he forgave me. I understand, you know, that God loves me. But the experience of that is even more difficult to grasp. And that's what Paul is praying for. He's not just praying that you'd grasp it as in you'd understand it in your brain. He's praying that you would know the love that surpasses knowledge, he says. Well, if it surpasses knowledge in your brain, that must mean he's talking about a different kind of knowing. He's talking about an experiential knowing of the height and breadth and length and depth of Christ's love for us. How can we experience it? Especially when we're so in touch with the reality of our failure, our unworthiness. I think the first is to pray like Paul has prayed. 
that the power of God would be released into your life to blow away all of these old paradigms, to blow away all of the the ways that we think and the way we see ourselves and we see the world around us, to pray that the Holy Spirit would absolutely come and move within us that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. But then I think the other way is we begin to bring out from under the rug all of those things that we've been trying to hide. It's to open the closet door and start to bring those things out from our past, from our present, so that we can see them clearly. Not so that we can heap more shame on ourselves, but so that we can actually understand what Jesus has taken for us. There was a pastor in England in the 1900s named, named, named David Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he used this, this illustration to kind of help us understand this point. He said, imagine that you have a friend, a neighbor, that while you're out of town, is getting your mail, and when you come back into town, tells you, hey, I paid your bill for you. How would you react? How would you respond? Well, Jones goes on to say, well, it probably depends on how big the bill was. Right? If it was a $5 library fine, you might say, well, thank you. That's kind of, you might be like, that's kind of weird, but, you know, thanks. But it's probably not going to stir something deep within your inner being. Now, if they paid your electric bill these days, I mean, with inflation, you might feel pretty good about that. That might get some real gratitude from you. What if they paid your mortgage? Not just your monthly mortgage, what if they paid the whole thing off? Well, now that would get a response, wouldn't it? That would move something within us. You might even go and hug your neighbor. You might kiss your neighbor and you're not even Italian. Because the enormity of what's been paid for you stirs something within you. You've experienced something profound, and it allows for a response in kind. And so, to understand, to grasp, not just in our head, but to begin to grasp more fully in our heart, in our soul, in our experience, the love of Christ, we need to stop ignoring the reality of our sin and our failure. We need to bring it out into the open. We need to name it. We need to identify it so that we can understand that this is what Jesus came to take for us. This is what was put upon him on the cross. All of our regret, our shame, our failure from the past, the present, the future laid upon him and he willingly died so that we didn't have to bear the brunt of that. Man, now that's, that's love. That's real and true, and full love. The more we understand the enormity of what Jesus has done for us, the more we will begin to grasp the love of Christ for us. And this love will fill us to the fullness of God. It will give us a full life. And when the love of God fills us, man, then we don't need to go looking elsewhere for love. And so many of us are looking all over the place for love. Many looking for love from our parents, who, some of whom have been gone for years. Some of us are looking for love from a spouse who might be an incredible spouse and might in fact love you, but does not have the capacity to fill your innermost being to a fullness that your soul craves and longs for. 
Some of us are looking for love, but a long time ago traded it in because we're not sure that the kind of love that God gives is actually possible. And so we've traded it in for mutual affirmation other people that will just kind of be together and say, you're okay, I'm okay, it's all good. Some of us have traded it in for respect rather than love. And so we've invested ourselves in our work in such a way that maybe the folks around us will see our accomplishment, they'll see what we've done, and at least they'll give us some respect, which will make us feel warm and tingly in our soul for a little bit, though it will leave us empty. See, to be full of the love of God through Jesus Christ means that we don't need to look for love anywhere else. And the more we can acknowledge the reality of our failure and our sin, the more we can see the power and the enormity of the love of Jesus for us. We'll understand it in our mind, but we will grasp it in our heart and our soul. And when that happens, we get to experience something profound. That when we look in the mirror, we don't see our failure. We don't see our regret, but we can begin to see ourselves the way God sees us, beloved, those in whom he delights, those in whom, those whom he cherishes. In other words, those whom he loves more than we can ever fully understand. This is why we need the power of God to explode into our lives, that we can grasp his incredible love, the height, the depth, the breadth and the length of God's love for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this incredible hope that though we've got closets full of stuff, that you are willing to move in. Lord God, I pray that your power would be released into our lives, that it would be at work within us, exploding, blowing away those old paradigms that we think we have to clean ourselves up first, that we think we have to prove ourselves worthy, that we, we think that that's yeah, fine as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, those paradigms that say we've got to be a certain way. Oh God, blow those away. Make room for your love to truly fill us with life to the full. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.